So the show is the weekly Havoc, and we've already done one episode this week about Afghanistan. So that really should have been all we had to say about it uh, if we were going to adhere to our format. But full disclosure, I'm too emotionally invested in uh, what's going on over there right now. And I just had to record an extra episode this week because events over there are happening fast and furious. And I felt like they needed to be addressed. I also felt like, especially for those that have never been to Afghanistan, there might be some kind of cliff notes on Afghan history that might be helpful. Some things to kind of add context to people's thoughts about Afghanistan and what's going on over there. So I wanted to throw that out there. So I don't know. Does this make this the the bi-weekly havoc? I don't know. Anyway, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the extra episode this week of the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this extra episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Except, of course, right now, this is, as I said, an extra episode, and there's good news and bad news. The good news is you're getting two episodes of the Weekly Havoc this week, both of them on Afghanistan, because how often do you have such a huge, righteous fuck-up that we can mine it for multiple episodes in one week? So that's the good news, um, if you can call anything that's happening related to Afghanistan good news. Uh, the bad news is that, unfortunately, this episode is going to be um, only me, uh, because mostly I just wanted to talk about a kind of level setting when it comes to the issue of Afghanistan. There's a lot of stuff that I'm not going to bore our guests, and our guests kind of already know, so there's no point in me mentioning it when we have guests on. But there's a lot of things um, that I keep seeing on social media, and again, I'm becoming more and more of a user of social media than a dealer in social media. That's a bad place to be. Makes me mutter to myself in the mirror repeatedly and often and usually against my will. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, I am seeing a lot of stupidity out there. So I wanted to kind of take a thwack at some of that low-hanging fruit and uh, kind of address some of those myths that I keep seeing out there. But I also wanted to give a little bit of backstory and, for lack of a better word, kind of remedial history or, um, you know, kind of cliff notes of Afghan history just to kind of set the table because I think there's a lot of stuff that um, Americans in general and even sometimes vets uh, aren't totally aware of or or weren't totally tracking um, that I think is important for people to know when we try to get some perspective on Afghanistan and understand uh, the stakes and what's in play and what uh, right should look like there. So let me start first with just some quick remedial cliff notes on Afghan history. So <clears throat> it's one of these common tropes that you hear all the time that oh, Afghanistan's always been in war. Oh, it's always been violent and all that. That's not really true. So Afghanistan has had, don't get me wrong, it's had tons of violence in its history. Uh, There was a good stretch, though, from about the 1870s to the 1970s, where Afghanistan was relatively peaceful. And that was mostly due to the Iron Sheikh, Sheikh Rahman, who came in with a heavy hand, as his name suggests, and uh, basically slaughtered everyone that tried to stand against him. 
He was not very political. He uh, did not, uh, you know, try to savvy his way through relationships with all the different Afghan tribes and with all the different um, interests in Afghanistan. He just killed whoever didn't agree with him. And that was shockingly uh, effective. For about a hundred years, there were no significant uh, uh, disruptions to the uh, ruling class in uh, Afghanistan. Um, there were some revolts, there were some some uprisings in the 1920s and all that. But generally, Afghanistan was the most stable it's ever been. To the point that, I believe it was I can't remember it was the 19 teens or the 1920s, uh, but the um, the uh, God, I think at the time he was the king. No, I think he was the president. Anyway, uh, the Afghan ruler at the time went to Paris and was just blown away with the modern modernizations and the modernism of France and of Western Europe and really wanted Afghanistan to be modeled after that. And, uh, and so as a result, you know, he was, he pushed too quickly because it backfired on him, but he pushed to try to modernize Afghanistan and Afghanistan wasn't really ready for it. Um, but nonetheless, despite his radical push for modernization, over the next several decades, kind of a, a more gentler, conservative, slower push towards modernization occurred. And by the 1970s, you can go and Google. You have images of Afghan women in the streets with miniskirts. You know, um, Afghanistan is a, is a bit of a fashion, uh, has a bit of a fashion scene. Um, certainly, you had a lot of hippies and people like that going around smoking hash everywhere. And it was a tourist destination <laughs> in many respects. So what happened to Afghanistan? Uh, it ran into one of the two most malevolent ideologies we've had in the last hundred years, communism. Uh, obviously, uh, the Soviet Union at the time, it's had borders all along the northern part of Afghanistan. And uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union's sphere of influence hung over Afghanistan, especially over its universities. Uh, the power of the universities, which is a subject for another time, and, a, and the ability of college students to wield unbelievable amounts of evil is, is a subject that I won't get into right now. But uh, if you want to really start a revolution, capture the colleges uh, is, is all I'll say. We can go and look at historical examples from the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution and to uh, the Afghan uh, chaos for proofs of that. So what happened is uh, communist ideology had seeped uh, increasingly into the Afghan universities and led, and again, this is the Cliff Notes version, but it led to the uh, killing of one president, uh, then the death of a second president. Uh, the Soviet Union was backed into a corner because the communist, its communist adherents in Afghanistan uh, were risked being killed and overthrown by the uh, rest of the Afghans. And uh, the Soviet Union was at a crossroads. It said, do we go support our adherents in Afghanistan or do we uh, let them go? And they decided to be ideological about it and support the people that supported their ideology. So in 1979, Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And that led, uh, most importantly for our intents and purposes, it led to our involvement in Afghanistan because of the Cold War, and our 50-meter target was destabilizing uh, the Soviet Union. 
And if the Soviet Union was going to go out on a limb in Afghanistan, then we were going to try to shake that limb and cause them to fall off it. And we did quite successfully, but we couldn't do it alone. We needed help. Um, and the, the, the entity that took the lead in our involvement in Afghanistan were the Pakistanis and the Pakistani ISI, which is sort of like the Pakistani CIA. And they were our liaison to the Mujahideen uh, because the easiest call to arms to mobilize Afghans and unify them against the Soviet threat was for them to embrace uh, Islam. Now, most of the Afghans at the time were Sufi Muslims, um, but what we started cultivating was that relationship with Saudi Arabia. The Saudis started sending fighters over. We had a lot of foreign fighters uh, that we helped get into Afghanistan, and they brought a radical Sunni Islam or more, a more radical form of Sunni Islam, Wahhabism, into Afghanistan, which was not uh, native to Afghanistan. And the Wahhabists slowly, um, or not even so slowly, but started to radicalize many Afghans and teach them the quote-unquote true Islam. And uh, that worked as far as you know, uh, kicking out the Soviets. It took about 10 years, but the Soviets eventually uh, left. Uh, but over time, what it did is also developed this fifth column of radicals that were steeped in the second most malevolent, arguably the second most malevolent ideology of the last hundred years, uh, Islamofascism, which uh, a lot of the Mujahideen that we had trained now started to embrace. Now, we could have mitigated the effects of this somewhat had we stuck around, but we didn't. So let me just be clear, because a lot of people like to cast blame at the United States for any number of things. And it's important to note what we deserve blame for and what we don't. Uh, foreign policy is a game of 50-meter targets. You can't always worry about the second and third order effects in foreign affairs, because if you do, you will never do anything. You'll be paralyzed by inaction. So you sometimes just have to deal with the most imminent threat and, uh, and then worry about the second and third order effects as they come. Our problem, or what, in my opinion, the mistakes we made in Afghanistan in the 1980s isn't that we funded the Mujahideen and isn't that we brought in foreign fighters to organize and help train and, um, in many cases, radicalize uh, the Mujahideen against the Soviets. The issue is that we left. So we weren't able to mitigate any of the second or third order effects of what we had started. So these Saudis and these uh, Egyptians and all these foreign fighters that we had brought in now stuck around, saw the fertile, uh, what a fertile area Afghanistan was for training camps and for developing more fighters. And with the United States having shoved off, they were now free and clear to do as they saw fit in Afghanistan, which was uh, essentially lawless for um, about you know, the next 10, 15 years. So uh, that was one major effect of our involvement in Afghanistan in the 1980s. The other is that we did not fully appreciate what Pakistan's interests were. Um, there were Americans on the ground in Afghanistan in the 80s, but Pakistan is the, is the entity and the ISI is the entity that had the lead there. And Pakistan was the 
entity through which we funneled most of our money, our weapons, our training. We worked in concert with them. And Pakistan was the entity that really uh, held the leash on the Mujahideen. Well, while the Soviets were a preeminent threat of ours, uh, the Soviets were not a preeminent threat or not the preeminent threat of the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis sided with us because the Indians, who are the Pakistanis' most uh, predominant threat, uh, the Indians favored the Soviet Union. So Pakistan was balancing that out by helping us. But Pakistan's interest was always against India, not against the Soviet Union. And the most contested issue on which the Pakistanis had a beef with India was the area of Kashmir. And this, I'm cribbing a lot of this from Steve Cole's um, books, uh, Ghost Wars and Director S. So this is not my own uh, musings, but out of all the stuff I've read and by the time I spent in Afghanistan, this makes wildly abundant sense to me and and bears out. Um, the disputed territory of Kashmir that lies between Pakistan and India uh, has not been good for the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis have been routed there uh, repeatedly by the Indians when they've tried to move into Kashmir. So the Pakistanis needed a third party. They needed a proxy. They needed some entity that could launch attacks against the Indians in Kashmir that had plausible deniability, that did not would not appear to have uh, Pakistani fingerprints all over them. And the foreign fighters and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan were prime candidates. And the ISI saw that potential. And as they continued to nurture their relationship with the Mujahideen and the Mujahideen ended up becoming breaking apart, some Mujahideen eventually uh, years later, um, you know, five, six, seven years later, uh, some of them became uh, elements of the Taliban. Uh, the foreign fighters that were part of the Mujahideen, uh, many of them became Al Qaeda um, or other groups, and um, and then many of the Mujahideen also became what we ended up partnering with after nine eleven in the Northern Alliance. So just because we trained the Mujahideen did not mean we we necessarily train the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, but many of those people did end up joining the Taliban or Al-Qaeda down the road. But as I say, it wasn't fait accompli uh, in the 1980s. That took multiple, that took five or so years after the fact. And had we stuck around, I think we would put our finger on the scales in ways that would have mitigated a lot of the trouble we had uh, 10, 15 years later. Okay. So the ISI throughout the 1990s continued to cultivate that relationship with the Mujahideen that worked to their benefit in Kashmir. That, that has always been Pakistan's interest in Afghanistan is that they can grow their own group of uh, terrorists that they can use against India. The other piece that goes hand in hand with that is that if Afghanistan ever became stable and uh, independent and a normal functioning country, it would um, it might very well form an alliance and has been courted repeatedly in the past by India. And if that were to happen, India and Afghanistan would sandwich Pakistan. They'd be on either side of them. So for its own national security, Pakistan has always been fearful of a stable Afghanistan. And as a result, Pakistan has always worked to destabilize Afghanistan uh, because they, they um, 
are very afraid of what Afghanistan would do if it was an independent country whose fate did not rest on the benevolence of Pakistan. So that's kind of what you need to understand about Afghanistan and Pakistan and that relationship. And that's a key piece of why we have been at war for 20 years, because we do need Pakistan to help us. And Pakistan has allowed us to do a lot of things um, against the Taliban and against Al-Qaeda. Pakistan works with us, um, but they also work against us. They are the true definition of a frenemy because they have their own interests that do not necessarily line up with ours. And Pakistan also is burdened because it doesn't have complete control over its own entities. Directorate S of the ISI was notoriously um, independent from the government, and the government had a hard time cracking the whip and making the ISI conform to what the rest of the Pakistani government was doing. So again, Cliff Notes, I'm not going to try to get too much into the weeds on this, but that should give you an appreciation for why uh, this war effort has been so complicated. It's, I mean, the last data point I'll leave out there is that, you know, it's no secret that the Taliban leadership for years, for 10 to 15 years, has been located in Pakistan. Um, and that's because the Pakistanis allowed it to be. So, um, you know, Pakistan giveth and Pakistan taketh away. That's been our relationship with Pakistan. And Pakistan has both allowed us to capture terrorists that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to get. And it has also uh, fostered terrorism and encouraged more of it uh, and enabled more of it. And let's be clear, Pakistan doesn't have a firm grasp on that leash that it has over the Taliban or any of the entities that it supports in Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan does fund, train, support those entities um, and uses that support as a carrot and a stick. Uh, they will withdraw support if they think it helps them. They will add support if they think it helps them. But uh, the Taliban is no, and the Afghans in general are notoriously unreliable for the Pakistanis. So they have a hard time cracking the whip and even making the Taliban do what they want them to do. But it does give them at least some leverage. And um, and that's been enough for Pakistan to stay invested in the Taliban and in uh, fostering instability in Afghanistan. Okay. So hopefully that sort of adds a bit of context as to why this war has been so complicated. The other piece that I think it's important to know about Afghanistan is that Afghanistan is a very leveraged country. Afghanistan's fate has always been decided by its neighbors, not by itself, because the people in Afghanistan are wildly different. Um, it's You always hear about the tribes of Afghanistan. Well, it's not just that they're tribes. It's those tribes have tribesmen that are outside of the country, but adjacent to them. So, uh, you know, Tajiks, you know, have support. Uh, that tribe has support, obviously, in Tajikistan, but also in Iran. Uh, the Jamia party in Afghanistan, which is the Tajik political party, um, has close ties with uh, Iranian interests. At the same time, uh, they were also a big part of the Northern Alliance, who we partnered with after 9-11. Um, so it, it all gets complicated because, you know, their interests are, do not necessarily line up with ours, um, but they are all helpful in different capacities. The point being that you need to appreciate Afghanistan is adjacent to China, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Iran, and Pakistan. 
So that's a lot of, if you consider that Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan were all part of the former Soviet Union and that Russia still maintains a strong influence in those countries, you have to consider that Afghanistan is geographically incredibly important piece of land. It is neighbors to all, let me think about this, just about all, well, let me say all of our most significant geopolitical enemies are neighbors of Afghanistan. Um, we have other geopolitical enemies that aren't, but all the, the biggest ones are all adjacent to Afghanistan, um, which you could look at as a bad reason to be in Afghanistan, or you could look at it as a good reason to be in Afghanistan. Um, I submit it was a great reason to be in Afghanistan. So that's another other important thing to know, and to know that all of those countries that surround Afghanistan all lobby, I guess lobby is the best word I can think of, um, they lobby hard to affect what goes on in Afghanistan because um, their interests, their borders, their trade, their oil, all of it is affected by what goes on in Afghanistan. In some cases, like in Pakistan's case, they benefit from instability. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, uh, for Iran, which has fostered a lot of drugs, methamphetamines that they build out of their own, you know, that they, uh, methamphetamines that are, are lab manufactured. Um, Afghanistan's been great. Again, they like the instability because it creates a great meth market. Um, it's lawless. You can traffic things through there. Um, there's very few consequences. In Iran's case, there's a great illegal immigrant population that does a lot of work uh, in Afghanistan, in, in Iran. So Iran benefits from the illegal labor market um, that comes from Afghanistan. So again, just things you need to consider about Afghanistan. Um, one of the big tropes that I've heard repeatedly this week is, look, we needed to leave, uh, but you know this was the wrong way to go about doing it, or there was no good way to go about leaving. But the bottom line is, we needed to leave, and at least we're leaving. That might be one of the dumbest takes you could possibly have. Um, there are some people that I like that make the argument we need to leave. Um, very few of them put it in the way that I just phrased it. Um, let me make the case for why le- needing to leave is a ludicrous proposition. The only people that really should think that we needed to leave are people that never that think we never should have gone there after 9-11. If you think we were right to go into Afghanistan after 9-11, then you should not have any reason why you think we need to leave at this point. Because we have known for some time that we were once we went into Afghanistan, all we were doing was stirring up a hornet's nest. Now, the only way, once you've stirred up the hornet's nest, you better kill all the hornets. Because if you don't, all you've done is destroy the hive and create a bunch of pissed off hornets. Well, that's what we've done uh, by leaving. So again, this wasn't a critical situation. Um, it only is a critical situation if you leave. And let me give some proof to that. Um, by the end of our time in Afghanistan, not before the reduction in violence initiative, which Trump stupidly started in February 2020, or the ensuing uh declarations of peace and and the peace process and all that in Doha that happened following that. But prior to February 2020, when uh, we were engaged against the Taliban, the Taliban was engaged against us, and most of the missions were Afghan-led. We were doing true 
TAA, Train, Advise, and Assist Missions. Um, so we were supporting the Afghan military with air, with intelligence support, with ISR platforms, but it was the Afghan military that was predominantly the entity going out and doing all the fighting. And you can see that in the casualty numbers that we had. Uh, I would say look from February 2020 to February 2019. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a shockingly low casualty count for American casualties. I want to say so- somewhere around maybe 30 or so. We weren't losing many people. And I you, know, you weep for any American death. But, um, but relatively speaking, this was not uh, a bloodbath by any stretch of the imagination for us. It sure as hell was for the Taliban because we were able to schwack them repeatedly and scare the crap out of them. And I can tell you for what Taliban leaders used to have to do, what even during this time when we were doing train, advise, and assist missions and the Afghans were leading the initiative, a Taliban leader would wake up in a house that was not their own, go eat breakfast in a different location, lunch in another location, dinner in a third location, and then go to another place that was not his home uh, that night. And that was the rotation they had to do seven days a week because they were terrified of us and terrified of our drone capabilities, terrified of when they could expect Afghan commandos to come dropping in on them. Um, We were truly enabling the Afghans to um, really bring the fight to the Taliban. So we could have maintained that pace indefinitely. There was no reason we ever had to let up on that. But we also needed to be acutely aware, look, we're in, I mean, Afghanistan hosts every single or entity or elements of every single Sunni terrorist organization on the planet, just about, not to mention entities supported by all of our geopolitical enemies. Um, it is incredibly fertile ground for bad guys. So to think that we could ever just pull up stakes and leave is ludicrous. And I humbly submit at the cost of, you know, a few dozen American lives a year to keep the military out there, use the Afghan military to fight these battles and to take the fight to bad guys. So Afghanistan could not be a training ground, could not be a home uh, to these entities and to keep all these shitheads at bay was an incredibly wise move. However, we have suffered from three straight American presidents who wanted us out of Afghanistan. Obama did, fatefully, because he, um, and and the most clear example, both of his intent to leave and of his uh, inability to find a good reason for us to leave, was that when the Pentagon requested the surge in Afghanistan and told him, you know, they wanted 100,000 troops to go in. Obama said, well, I'll give you half that many, which is, let me sidebar, is very much the story of our of the war in Afghanistan. It is a war that we only staffed through half measures and under-resourcing. It never got our full attention or our full weight, the full might of the American military. It got half measures almost exclusively and no more, n- nowhere more so than when Obama surged our troops there. Um, in his fir- in his first term, so he undercut the Pentagon's request for manpower by fifty percent. Then, in the same speech in which he surged the troops, 
he said that we were going to start pulling those same troops out within three years. So if you're the Taliban, you just had to set your watch and go, okay, these guys are not here for the long haul, and you bide your time. And that is why we, that, that aid and comfort to the enemy, as a result, uh, undercut our own efforts. If the Taliban knew we were going to be there for 100 years with this kind of effort, uh, they'd go, this isn't worth our time. Let's go somewhere else. But when they when you keep telling them, hey, trust me, we don't want to be here either. We want to get out of here as soon as we can. They're going to go, great, we'll wait you out. And um, so from Obama on, we have had presidents that did not want to be in Afghanistan. To Obama's credit, as much as he under-resourced and underfunded the Afghan war, uh, he wasn't dumb enough to totally disbelieve the intelligence and to actually pull us out. Uh, Trump and Biden chose to disregard the intelligence and willed themselves to pull us out of Afghanistan. There was no cause for it. There was no inciting incident that made Donald Trump in February of 2020 decide that he needed to sign a reduction in violence initiative with the Taliban and stop killing them. There was no reason for him to ever start the Doha peace talks in Qatar um, with the Taliban and start figuring out a way to come to a peace deal. There was no reason for him to empty Parwan prison of 5,000 notorious Taliban killers and free them back into the Afghan wild in uh, December, January of 2019, 2020. Um, but he did. And Biden was stupid enough not to reverse that and to believe that he was bound to this stupidity um, and and follow through on it. So that's how we got to where we are now. Um, Joe Biden has repeatedly said that our mission in Afghanistan has been met. That is a lie. There, there's no other way to put that. Uh, Biden's not dumb enough to actually believe that. So I have no other choice than to say that's a lie. Um, that is, uh, or let me just say, it is not true. I, I still would call it a lie, but regardless, I'll, for, for the, let me be as politic as I can. It is not true. Um, and here it's important to note the Taliban, Haqqani, Al-Qaeda, in 2001, those were all different things. Now, in 2021, those are a lot more incestuous terms. Um, Haqqani is Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is Haqqani. There's no difference between the two. Um, there are people who uh, you could um, point to on an organizational chart and say, oh, this is a Taliban red unit leader, which means one of their commando leaders. And on another org chart, he might be a Haqqani leader or a Taliban shadow governor. Well, it's all the same. They're, they're, they've all bled into each other. And they're all, uh, you know, they're distinctions without differences at this point. So to say simply that Al-Qaeda does not exist and is not a threat anymore in Afghanistan is ludicrous. Ludicrous. Foreign fighters are plenteous in Afghanistan. They are there. They were being hunted, but they have flooded back in um, ever since the reduction to violence. And uh, Al-Qaeda and all of its adherents and all the other Sunni terror groups um, have strong presences in Afghanistan. 
So the point being, take no comfort from this withdrawal. Uh, I personally don't see a way that we will not be back in Afghanistan in force within three years because I don't know how you can leave Afghanistan and not have that war follow us home. It followed us home on September 11th, 2001, and we weren't even over there. Um, To leave that place without adult supervision, without having any eyes on that place, without any idea of what's going on over there, and think that all those entities aren't going to plot and plan and enable attacks in Western Europe and in the United States is madness. So I don't know what planet people are living on when they think that our mission there is done. It's not done. Our mission there was an indefinite mission. Now, it had an endpoint, a defined endpoint, which was bad guys can no longer conduct uh, terror attacks from there, and they are quashed and Afghanistan. And the best way to do that was to create a stable Afghanistan, which brings out all the cries of, oh, you're nation building and all that. Well, we're nation building because that's the best end for our national security, Um, not not because we're trying to be do-gooders and just build up a, a nation in our own image and likeness. Um, but it serves a national security interest. But regardless, if there was another way of quashing terror entities and not having them plot and plan from Afghanistan that did not involve nation building, I'm open to it. That option I don't think exists. So my point being, what we were doing, uh, let's say October, November, December 2019, we could have kept doing indefinitely. And there was no reason to ever stop that. So... Um, so let's put that aside. Al Qaeda exists. It is there. My gut feeling is we will be hearing from them soon to our detriment. And then it might remind us that this is not, you can't, it takes two to walk away from a fight. One person can't just unilaterally decide to walk away from a fight, especially against this kind of shit bag. Um, and that should be very concerning to everyone. Let's talk about the other immediate second-order effect we can expect to see from Afghanistan, which is the betrayal of our allies over there. The amount of times I've heard Joe Biden in the last week or so talk about uh, supporting our allies, and we, you know, we, we can't be burdened down in Afghanistan. We have allies all over the world. We need to support them. Well, that's great. How much comfort are those allies all over the world taking from seeing how you treated your allies in Afghanistan? What precedent are you setting? I've heard through social media, this is not confirmed, but I've heard rumors that our linguists in Africa have stopped working with our troops because they don't believe we can be trusted. I, I think the White House and its defenders uh, don't appreciate the social credit rating of the American flag. The fact that when you're an American, what that actually means for people overseas. And I can tell you, Americans bond with foreigners in combat zones the way no other people do. Partly that's because we were a colony as well. You know, we were never colonizers. We were the colonized. So we kind of have that underdog sensibility that, say, the Brits or the French don't fully have. Um, Also, it's because we are so multicultural in this country. Uh, We can envision people from any country as Americans. So when we're there and we see, you know, 
hardworking people or good people or people that want a degree of democracy or want self-determination or individuality. Uh, we, can, we as Americans immediately sympathize with that and immediately that, that, that makes us, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we embrace that, that thinking when we see it. Now, that's not, I'm not saying this necessarily to badmouth our allies in France or England because right now they are showing us up in their determination to do the right thing in Afghanistan where we are not. But what I say that to say that I don't think our political elites fully appreciate that capital of goodwill that the United States has built up for hundreds of years that has been leveraged overseas and now is being betrayed and now is being undercut by our own president, by our own White House. And let me just sidebar for a second because I I, I almost can feel psychically any Biden voters out there uh, while I'm talking kind of writhing and squirming a little bit going, eh, yeah, but Trump, but Trump, but Trump. Look, the fact of the matter is Biden's a fucking moron and has done the wrong thing. That doesn't mean that Trump was a genius. Trump was a moron for even getting us into this, but Biden's a moron for not reversing it. Two things can be true at once. Um, and we need to get out of this sensibility that that because you say something bad about Biden, you're therefore saying something about good about Trump or vice versa. Two people can be wrong at once, and both of them were, horrifically so. I cannot think of two people less suited for foreign policy than those two. And that's proving out here. So that's just my biases. You can disagree with that as you see fit. But the point being, uh, just because I'm bashing Biden does not mean that you know I'm endorsing Trump or that this is a Trump-Biden narrative. And I think and that's a whole other discussion about the hero narratives we seem to invest in when it comes to our political leaders and the fact we have to realize there is no hero narrative. It's just you're right or you're wrong, and that might change issue by issue. It's not necessarily a global status. Okay. Let's leave that, all that stuff that we've talked about so far. I'm checking. I made a couple of notes just to make sure I didn't forget anything because I knew I was going to go on tangent and need to pull myself back onto uh, into a, uh, what we're, all the other subjects I wanted to get to here. Um, Joe Biden has mentioned repeatedly that we're going to do over the horizon stuff and we can do counter terror through over the horizon. Let, let me just say for everybody that doesn't understand over the horizon, don't feel bad. No one understands over the horizon, including the CIA or the Pentagon. It's a myth. There is no over the horizon. You can't do intelligence over the horizon. You can't do kinetic targeting over the horizon. Uh, it, it doesn't exist. If you want to do counterterror, somebody needs to have their ass inside Afghanistan. If they're not inside Afghanistan, you're not doing anything. So let's just be clear. We've gone back to, uh, as, as Paul D. Miller said on the Weekly Havoc podcast uh, from earlier this week, we've gone back to September 10th, 2001, uh, not just thinking. But reality, we're treating this like the 1990s. We have, we're completely blind. Once we leave there, we are blind to anything that happens in Afghanistan. Um, I think it's probably a good time to talk about war in general. Um, I, there seems to be a segment of the American population that believes nothing is worth war. And all wars uh, the only thing that should be applauded about war is the end of it. Uh, and and in some respects, that's true. But in very important respects, that's not true. War is simply uh, the natural 
endpoint extreme of one's diplomatic relations. And you need to have the ability to go to war and you need to, there are such things as good wars. There are righteous causes. Now we've been propagandized um, with, with Vietnam War movies and the like for you know, 40, 50 years. So in a way that I think has conditioned the American public to believe that no war is good. And that's a lie. Of course, there are wars that are good. And Afghanistan was a good war. It was a righteous war. We didn't try to go. We didn't want to go to Afghanistan. People in Afghanistan came, blew up our buildings, killed 3,000 of my neighbors, including almost me. And um, that's a whole different story, but that's because I was at 9-11. Anyway, point being, um, that was a righteous war. That was a war worth fighting. And we have not satisfied the conditions on which we went to that war. And pulling out prematurely, obviously, as I said, will have a lot of negative effects. Okay. I don't want to uh, be redundant and repeat all the things I've already said. So let me just go through this, see if there's anything else out here that I want to address right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. The last thing I want to address. So we found out, uh, you know, in the press who reported that uh, CIA director Nicholas Burns met with the Taliban on Monday, August 23rd in Kabul. And shortly after that, word on the ground from uh, people I know and from other people that I don't know, um, Afghans who are trying to get to the airport, get to Hkaya. Um, fo- again, is it a coincidence or not? I almost don't care, but um, it's worth asking. Following that meeting, the checkpoints around Hkaya have been pushed out even further. Checkpoints have been established further away from the airport, meaning that Afghans, even American citizen, American citizens of Afghan heritage who are trying to get their spouses, their family, whatever, out, can't even reach the airport. So what does that mean? That means that there's no more Afghans coming to flood the perimeter of Hkaya and cause immediate sensation. Now, obviously, there's plenty of Afghans as we're as I'm recording this. There are currently still plenty of Afghans ringing Hkaya, <clears throat> but they're going to be less so because nobody else is coming because they can't get even to the perimeter of Hkaya. And let's be clear: the perimeter gates at Hkaya are manned by the Taliban. There's multiple gates at Hkaya, and the most external ones are manned by the Taliban. Then they dump them off onto our people. Um, but you, but the thing is that creates bad optics for the White House because you can stand inside Hkaya and film all the people at the perimeter. Well, now you you can't because people can't even get that close. So the bottom line is: look, I'm not going. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Nicholas Burns or on the CIA, because I know a lot of CIA officers are livid as to how this is playing out. But whatever the drug deal was that Nicholas Burns worked out with the Taliban, and I can't believe I'm even saying those words, but whatever that deal was, the end result of it is you cannot rest a bad word about the Taliban out of the mouths of Jen Psaki or Joe Biden or anyone at the White House. They will not have a bad word to say because their political future 
And in some cases, the lives of some Americans and some Afghans rests on the goodwill of the Taliban. Then in addition, you are banning the sight and the memory of any other Afghans by not even letting them get close to HKI where our cameras might be able to capture them and at least see their faces, show their numbers, what have you. Um, those people are just not going to be heard from again. And how this White House believes that's the right move is beyond me. One of the things that I have seen on social media is the amount of Joe Biden supporters that dogmatically cannot bear, again, going back to the hero hero narrative problems that we have in this country, they cannot bear an ill word about Joe Biden and are rallying to say that yeah, however we were going to leave this country, Afghanistan, it was going to be messy. And Biden's doing you know, really great work and epic and heroic work getting everybody out. Um, bullshit. You caused this problem. You are desperately trying to pick up the pieces. Um, I think the group is uh, Alliance of Our Wartime Allies. I think on, on Twitter, they have been, um, they've been posting numbers about how many identified uh, Afghan allies we have that we're trying to get out of the country and how many we've actually airlifted out. And, you know, it's, it's not, it looks, I mean, on the graph, I think it looked like maybe a quarter, maybe at most a third, um, not enough and way too little, way too late. And, um, the amount of bad blood we've harvested from this is just epic, but my big point in saying all this is the drug deals that we're working out, that our government is working out with the Taliban to reduce the, the bad optics of seeing Afghans crowd around HKIA and what that image is going to look like in a few days when our planes pull up from Afghanistan for the last time for now. Uh, and we see the faces below that we're leaving behind. That's some soul searching that a country has to do about what kind of country you are. And I don't, I don't know if people that haven't served or people that haven't deployed before, people who haven't had to trust interpreters to be giving them accurate information, um, you know, relaying accurate information to them, or people that haven't worked with indigenous people in a combat zone, if they can fully appreciate the goodwill that we have relied on as Americans overseas, that we relied on automatically just because we wore an American flag, what that meant to the people, the the indigenous people of whatever country we're in, and what that is going to mean going forward, and how hard it is to recoup that trust. Okay. Anything else I say would probably just be more heat than light, but, um, yeah, we'll be back. I I don't think there's a way around it. I, I, I don't see how we're not back there. I don't see how this threat doesn't follow us home. And, um, we're going to remember, we're going to remember what real threats look like. So guys, I'm sorry. I'm ending this on a downer note. I didn't mean to, (laughs) um, I'm trying to think if there's a positive note I can end on. 
you know, I asked on on the other podcast we did, uh, the other episode we did with uh, on Afghanistan. I asked uh, Paul Miller and G and Alice Atalanta, what would be the best piece of news you could hear from Afghanistan this week? And everybody struggled with that. Um, and I struggle with it too. I, I don't know necessarily um, what the best piece of news is. I will say, I, and I don't know if it's a cause for optimism or concern, but I think it's worth remembering that Ross Perot was trying to fund POW rescue missions into Vietnam as late as I believe – I haven't looked this up on Wikipedia or anything, but I, I, I believe as late as like 1980, he was still trying to fund, uh, you know, guys to go back in and find POWs in Vietnam. That was five years after the official end of the Vietnam War. So I'm sure there are people that are funding, and I'm, I'm, you know, sure there's a lot of GoFundmes and stuff like that. In addition to private funds that are being accumulated for, um let's call them independent contractors to go in and try to get people out. And that is shocking that we need to do that when the U S government has the capability. When first off, this was an unforced error that there was no reason we needed to pull out at this time. There was absolutely no inciting incident to this. We didn't get massacred somewhere. There wasn't like a bunch of beheadings of American servicemen where we were like, oh my God, we're just getting our butts kicked over here. It's like we were doing fine. We were literally doing fine. And the Afghans were taking the lead. And arbitrarily, capriciously, to cut and run like this um, is, is shocking. But what what that leads me to think is as much as I'm encouraged by the private donors and private individuals that are funding efforts to go over there, I'm going to speculate. And th- this is uh, this is completely speculative, but I'm going to wonder out loud so that I can say I, I called it first if this ends up coming true. Um, is this an, a data point on the road to the end of nation states? That when a nation state betrays its ability to execute things that are in its own interest, and private individuals do take over those responsibilities, do start to take over the functions of a nation state, like national security, you know, um, recovery efforts, personnel recovery. When that falls to private individuals, what does that mean for the nation state? doesn't strengthen it. I mean, it says a lot about the character of the people and the character of Americans, um, but that should best be represented in our official stance, our official government presence. And when it isn't, what does that mean for that official government? We've had a severe loss of trust in American institutions, from American churches to American government entities to, um, you know, police to you know every american institution has taken a hit in credibility in the last 5 years and uh the military less so than any other but if the military the extension of the us government you know the true where the boots meet the hit the ground in our foreign policy if that if the military now no longer has the capability of engendering trust in our allies and let's be clear, that's what this is. We're, we're hemorrhaging trust from our allies. Um, who's there to pick up the slack? I don't know. All right. Not, not 
a super optimistic note to end on, but maybe a little more intellectually curious than straight out pessimistic. So that might be the best I can do on this one, guys. But hopefully that added a little bit of context and a little bit of color to uh, your thoughts on Afghanistan. And uh, who knows, I might do, I I don't like to bore you guys with me just, you know, uh, pontificating uh, one-on-one, but sometimes, you know, with an event like this um, that I personally have knowledge of, I feel like I, I can speak about it. And as long as I don't bore the hell out of you guys, I'm happy to do so and kind of add these extra episodes. So, um, you know, appreciate your comments. If, if anybody's like, dude, enough, nobody wants to hear from you anymore. Um, I appreciate hearing that. If you're like, Hey, I like it. Thanks for adding your two cents. Um, or, or giving us, you know, a little bit of historical cliff notes. Um, I'm happy to hear that as well. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. We hope you guys follow us, uh, you know, weekly havoc, um, I don't know if there's going to be show notes or show alibis that I'll have, but um, if there are, they'll be out there. You can just scroll wherever you're listening to this podcast and you'll see them. Um, anyway, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. We'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.